नमस्ते आदिति नमस्ते शैली नमस्ते हाय हेलो शैली वेलकम थैंक यू इट्स वंडरफुल टू बी हियर सो शैली वेलकम टू चाय एंड चैट आई सी यू ऑलरेडी हैव योर कप ऑफ टी सो वी आर रेडी टू गो सो नताशा आई वांटेड टू टेल यू अ लिटिल बिट अबाउट हर शी इज द डीन ऑफ कॉलेज ऑफ आर्ट्स एंड साइंसेस इन सेंट जोसेफ्स यूनिवर्सिटी हियर इन फिलाडेल्फिया and uh, wow what a resume her uh, research interests are so varied but they, she basically uh, works in environmental ethics conservation biology global change this is all very very Current. pertinent to what's happening <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so perfect so thank you very much for joining us shaili and um let's get started absolutely uh, Wonderful. Yeah, tell us how you got to Philadelphia. It looks like you were you've been moving around a lot, but tell us how you got here. I was born and raised in uh, Mumbai. You know, I had an interesting upbringing in the sense that my parents were from two different parts of the country. So my mother was from uh, Punjab and originally Pakistan, and then after partition, you know, came t- to New Delhi. And my father was from Kerala. for for its time especially it was a very unusual yes um, yeah. situation so of course it uh, came with uh, some uh, benefits or you know interesting aspects but also some challenges you know in terms of uh, belonging not belonging really in any uh, you know and the the families hadn't been too excited about it <laughs> i could imagine <laughs> <laughs> so it took a little while so we were in uh, in bombay mumbai and um you know so it was it was kind of isolating not not fully belonging in any uh community or group but on the other hand with the melting pot and the different cultures and things that were there it also um gave me sort of this glimpse into what a multicultural um diverse society mm-hmm. could look like and uh you know so i so in that sense i had a very uh unusual childhood Yeah so so what was interesting growing up is that I was always getting in trouble but not for the things that you know young people get in trouble for for going to parties or whatever it was for for reading too much or you know being too studious or wanting to be wow. a scientist and, and you know you know this expression log kya kahenge right so oh, <laughs> I don't hear that anymore what do people say yeah when <laughs> so, i did a phd at the Ohio State University and um I, and for that I I knew I wanted to work in the rainforest in India on uh this endangered primate species lion-tailed macaques so ended up designing my own one of a kind interdisciplinary phd mm, wow uh became a faculty member at Grand Valley State University and I was there for almost 20 years and um and then I moved to Philadelphia. Wow, so very exciting. But what I caught on to right in the beginning you said, you know, your um, your parents came from two different parts of India and then you lived in the third like you lived in uh, Mumbai and always feeling sort of not part of the community. Mm-hmm. So I want to just uh, catch on to that and h- how did that feeling transfer when you came to the US? Like did you still feel that? Was it heightened or did you just feel like now i'm one of many people who are different you know you know it's really interesting because when i came to the us it was with this idea of 
higher education and finally not being not getting in trouble for you know like reading books and wanting to do intellectual things and all of that um it wasn't until i finally got out into the world a little bit with like when i for example when i went to get a driver's license and you know all of this and then i saw people who didn't necessarily care about education in the same way that i did that's when i realized that um that that you know the us is in one big university you know, <laughs> there are all kinds of people and you know way it's been sad to see over time this sort of uh, disengagement with education and you know anti intellectualism and things that has uh, permeated society and we're seeing the results of some of that yeah it's interesting that you said that because i i think uh, i felt the same i came here for university and pretty much that first four or five years i was in a bubble you mm. know i felt like and and i and it sounds like you you know you found your niche you found your the group of people that you could you could belong to right they were all in the pursuit of this did you find that was that a culture shock when you went from being in this bubble in graduate school into the real world you know was that a easy transition for you so that's an interesting question because in some ways i never left the university right because i uh, my entire career has been at um, multiple right. universities so um but of course i you know i did um spend more time outside of universities and uh, in the community working with people and of course with our students right uh, helping them where they are you know like i tell students um think that they come to college or for higher education so that they can have a more comfortable life and i tell them that while that may be true in some ways in many ways you will have a more uncomfortable like it's supposed to make you more uncomfortable mm-hmm. because you can you have your eyes are now open to see mm-hmm. you know injustices and disparities and things that you then have an obligation to be part of the solution right um and so yeah. it's not supposed to you know so this idea that if you get education then you will be comfortable the rest of your life it's not necessarily what it's all about Yeah, that's such a great view of education. Great view, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's like developing perspectives that make you see injustices and make you know hopefully push you to do something about it. Do you see a difference with students that that come in now versus when you came to this country? Is there um good question? Any, yeah, do, do you see any difference in the way they approach life uh, as compared to what perhaps you came over as so th- there's lots of differences um the only way i could have come was if i had a full scholarship you know so my parents um scrunched together I- enough to buy me a one way ticket and i never you know at 21 or 22 never having been on a plane before never having stayed away from home mm-hmm. before never right. having left home i was getting on a plane with a one way ticket i mean in hindsight it seems crazy right um yeah. whereas what i'm finding now at least the the students that i'm meeting more recently um they uh, not only from india but also other places they're um able to pay you know like their parents uh, and others and they're coming for very specific graduate degrees uh, like mba or you know something Correct. else like that right. 
and the, with the idea of very quickly, you know, getting that master's or whatever it is, and then uh, job and career oriented, as opposed right. to for my thing is we're not preparing students for their first job. Right. We're preparing them for jobs that don't even currently exist, right? So, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, That's so, true. so I'm going back to this young 21-year-old with a one-way ticket <laughs> and the flight <laughs> out of Bombay. What kind of um, surprises or shocks did you have coming here? Any interesting little anecdotes? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, because I was coming to South Carolina, that uh, was an interesting, um, oh, you know. know. Uh, <laughs> so for example, <laughs> when the, the department chair or dean or somebody had called me in India to offer me the scholarship, I couldn't understand a word he was saying. And <laughs> I thought you know, maybe my English isn't as good as I think it is. I didn't realize that it was such a strong Southern accent that I, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, like, I can tell you my first impression, that sense of vastness and openness mm-hmm. was like this overpowering mm-hmm. sense of space and expansiveness that you don't feel, you know, especially in the heart part of Mumbai, you know, you've grown up there catching buses and trains and all of this uh, with all the people. Um, the, the other, I'll tell you one other anecdote of while I was in South Carolina. That's when I started learning about politi- this political spectrum and how, you know, um, like you have this idea of the United States and, mm-hmm. you know, um, progressive ideas and all of this. And then you actually go to a particular place and meet particular people and then you see it's actually quite varied but one thing I found really um, interesting and uh, you know shocking even was that the state capitol building had three flags the state flag and then the national flag the U.S. flag Mm -hmm. then in the middle was the confederate flag you know it just blew my mind that at that point in time we would still have this kind of officially this one day after I'd been there for several months a small tornado went through. So it didn't leave a lot of damage uh, in mm-hmm. its wake, but it did go through the Capitol, right? right? And afterwards, the only flag that was ripped to shreds was the Confederate flag, which is so <laughs> So I, <laughs> I said, if that isn't a sign. So uh, tell us a little more, Shelley, about your conservation work. Like you mentioned, uh, what animal did you mention? Lion-tailed macaque. What is the work exactly? So when I first came to the U.S. and I was in South Carolina, I was working in a lab. And we were studying the um, circadian rhythms, which is the, you know, the reason we get jet lag and the reason if we stay up later and later, then we have trouble getting up in the morning and all of that. So, um, So I was studying circadian rhythm, but using animal models. So I was using flying squirrels and because I'm an ecologist, you know, not a cell and molecular or, you know, right, um, right. flying squirrels live in uh, holes in trees, right? So they have these dens and they live in there and that's where they have like babies and stuff, you know, but then they come out every day. So the question was, because they're nocturnal and they come out at night, mm-hmm. how do they know not to come out while it's still light out? Mm-hmm. Because th- then they would get captured by uh, predators, predators, right? Yeah. So what is it that that keeps them from coming out too early, right? Because we recreated this. We had a a box, you know, where they would live, but then we had this light-proof 
tunnel that it would go in and then a lightproof um, nest box, right? And mm-hmm. so every time it came out, it would trip three sensors. So we would know every time it had come out and oh. had been exposed to light. And um, what we realized is that what happens is because no circadian rhythm, none of us have exactly 24. The, the meaning of circadian, the word is circa, is about, mm-hmm. and is 24 hours, mm-hmm. right? So it's about 24. So each of us, each, each species has like just under 24 or just over 24. And then each person has that difference. You know how some people are morning people and some right. are So with the flying squirrel, what they would do is they would wake up a little earlier, a little earlier, and then at one point they would come out and it would be light out. But then that light would reset the clock. So the okay. next night they would come out much later. Yeah. And then earlier, 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 and then reset. And then, you know, so that was very exciting to discover mm-hmm. that. I shifted focus to working in the rainforest. So for two years, I was in the Tamil Nadu area. I see. Uh, yeah. Anamalai National Forest. With all the tea estates and coffee estates, all the forests had become patch, patchy and fragmented. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so these groups of these lion-tailed macaques. So lion-tailed macaques are found only in India. They are endemic to the Western Ghats. Like the Western Ghats itself is a national treasure. And then the lion tomacac is kind of a symbol, one of the symbols of that. So, like, they were going to build this big dam in Silent Valley, and that was, there was a big protest and everything. It was a big thing in the 70s. The big reason that they stopped that project was because of lion tomacac. Silent Valley was one of the most, like, pristine habitats for lion tomacac and a lot of other species. But it turned out that they're not as delicate and dependent on very pristine forests as we thought. In their wild, completely wild state, they would be. Like yeah. they're very hard to see. They're very hard to track. They would never come down and interact. You know, like unlike rhesus macaques and stuff, like those temple monkeys and things. You know, right, right. So they yeah. were very different. But it turns out they're quite adaptable. Like a- animals, you know, and humans are quite adaptable when circumstances change and it becomes existential. So these ones that were in fragmented areas and exposed to humans were starting to interact more. You know, were, they were on the ground more than, we thought they were completely arboreal, like only in the trees. They never come down. I, I collected data where they were spending part of their time on the ground because that's where they were finding food because there wasn't enough food. You know, it was very degraded, the forest. So you are our very own Jane Goodall. <laughs> I don't know about that. Wow. Jane Goodall is a hero of mine, so... How was it to go back to India as a woman scientist, though? Because I was associated with, like, Wildlife Institute of India and Bombay Natural History Society and all of that, um, I had uh, connections, you know, um, in that sense. And and I wore field clothes and stuff. So Mm. I wasn't just a normal person. Like, I wasn't just a woman in a dress, you know, or sorry, wandering about. I was uh, kind of officially a forest person, you know? Yeah. So, uh, and I had binoculars and cameras and my gear. And I felt a certain amount of support, you know, from the other wildlife people and the um, forest officials and forest warden and all of that. Uh, The local people basically, you know, it was like a, I was weird to them, right? I, I was this kind of westernized 
person, you know, wearing trousers and shirt and all of that, and then with binoculars and things and going off into the forest. But I have to say, you know, what struck me right now is you, uh, you felt out of place early on when you were in India. Uh, and you were probably just as similar to everybody else, right? And now you really are extraordinary and doing extraordinary work. And yet, do you you feel completely at ease and part of your surroundings? So see how the you know how the flip occurs, right? Like <laughs> it's your yeah. perception of yourself that yes. changes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in a way, those experiences, those early experiences, made me kind of figure out how to thrive mm-hmm. by being on the um, at the edge, on the boundary, interest. where interesting things are actually happening. So yeah. I kind of flipped that narrative on its head, I, I think. I love how you said on the edge, like where yeah. interesting things are happening. <laughs> yeah, on the, on the one hand, we want our roots, you know, we want that, um, you know, that sense of belonging. But on the... But as we grow up, we see whatever we got out of our life's experiences, that's, that takes us to a whole new place, right? Mm. Yeah. And growth occurs on the boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, out of this comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's even in my education, <clears throat> I found the most interesting questions to be at the intersections of disciplines and things. The other part of your thing is environmental ethics. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's such an interesting thing. Sure. Ethics is basically what are the rules or the ways in which we want to live? With environmental ethics, it's how we behave towards nature and toward the world outside of humans. And how we answer that question tells us what we value in life and as, as people, right? So if you look at what is happening now with the emphasis on ROIs and in every sense and capitalism and the uh, disregard for the effects of what we do because it's, it makes it that much cheaper for us to buy the clothes or eat mm-hmm. the, the food or whatever. So we care less about the damage or the, what we're taking from the environment um, because it saves us uh, something it, it ma- makes life more comfortable or saves us you know cheap make things cheaper, cheaper right yeah, yeah that, so yeah. that's so that's ethics challenges us as a discipline you know challenges us to look at what we um, what we value and how we then behave um, towards uh, you know like I said each other or or nature in this case and and just judging by all the damage the environmental degradation and Mm. Um, not only the, you know, bad air quality and water and, you know, like in Flint and all of these other places mm. we've seen. So if you go by how we are behaving and the things we're seeing, we don't value life very much, um, whether it's, um, uh, you know, natural life and, uh, you know, plants and trees and animals and species going extinct. But we also don't value human life that much you know uh, especially in certain groups and certain strata of society because we uh, you know we seem to life seems to go on with uh, all of these injustices and uh, and um, depletion of resources and all of this 
but it's becoming an existential thing, you know, where people could say, well, as long as I'm okay and my family's okay, you know, I don't care what happens. Right. But now we're, we're an interconnected world. It, it's whatever happens doesn't just affect one group over there, right, living in that forest or something. It, it's affecting all of us. And it's a global issue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and all the things that we are seeing in this last few years is a product of what we have not been paying attention to, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the pandemic, the uh, the horrendous, you know, the wildfires. That that's one way to look at it. But what I think about the most is what about the generation of young people and the next generation? What kind of world are we leaving? for mm. them and what kind of future and there's you know even before the pandemic i was seeing a lot of more um, anxiety among young people as they're looking at at a future where the world is is much more depleted than mm. you know what what we inherited for example mm-hmm. um, you know the the thing that blows my mind is that the answers in in many ways are so they're right in front of us, right? The, so like one, one thing that's indisputable is the need for us as a human society to wean ourselves from fossil fuels, right? Mm-hmm. It's a finite resource that causes so much damage, both in its extraction and in its use. The answer is so clear. It's not jobs versus the environment because when you have renewable energy and you have smart young people putting their minds, problem solving to figure out how to make energy available to everybody in a renewable, sustainable, and um, less harmful way, uh, it's going to create more jobs and more mm. opportunities. So the fact that our institutions and leaders and politicians haven't been able to even come to terms with a way to do that, right? Um, uh, that That's what makes me sad, actually. <laughs> you know, And I feel this great that's sense great. of responsibility as an educator to, to change how higher education is done and get out of our sort of ivory tower mentality, you know, and, and bring together interdisciplinary groups of students who are actually, uh, I mean, think about how hopeful they will be knowing that they're part of the solution and not just talking about the problem. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So do you think that it, it should be taught even, even earlier then? I mean, it, or the, uh, the sort of conservationism, as as you put it. Um, but it used to be, I mean, it used to be even in India. Like I remember in yeah. second grade, third grade, my neighbors had EVS, environmental science. Really? So it, it is taught uh, in different ways in different places, I suppose, you know, actually I'm going to give a keynote next week at Grand Valley on uh, climate change education solutions. Wow. So, um, so, you know, and uh, some of the audience, um, they're going to be... Um, K-12 teachers and then higher ed. So what doesn't help is just to create fear, right, among students. That, that's my point. It's just to say, oh, we're all going to die and all of this isn't very helpful. That makes that problem of hope and uh, anxiety worse, right? Mm. We also need to point to solutions and hope. Mm. And, um, right. Yeah. Yes. So you mentioned K-12 teachers and I'm a, I'm a fifth grade teacher. And I did do like the National Geographic does a lot of projects like this, you know, the plastic pollution, ocean solutions. So I did do that with my fifth graders uh, last year. And 
so at least I said, let's collect the water bottles. You know, the, everybody gets a disposable plastic oh. water bottle. So we started collecting them, counting them, you know, figuring out what to do with them, called up the local recycling company and said, please come pick them up, you know. Mm-hmm. The fifth graders did all that. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad. So that's an example of re- grassroots action, right? Because we're always waiting for policymakers and rules. Somebody and like, else, right? Yeah. Somebody else to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Start at home, start small. So uh, so actually, Shari, I think it would be wonderful to let everybody know, you know, what is the one thing that everybody can do to do our part? Yeah, so this is where you'll find me very uh, hesitant to give like um, a soundbite or a simple, I'm not about simple answers because these are complex, very difficult questions we have to grapple with. And some would even argue that uh, what we do sometimes are what are called band-aid solutions or feel-good solutions. Like, oh, I recycle, so I'm good, the world's going to be good. But in reality, you know, the recycling is just, you know, it's almost like, if it's the least you can do, you know, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And also, we want we we need to be sure that the recycling is done in a proper exactly. way. Exactly. I don't even know what happens when I throw my, the, you know. Right. Yeah. right. Well, I've been seeing recent um, studies about, you know, individuals can do certain things and they should, but really, it's going to take collective action. It's going to right. take us pushing our policymakers and our corporations yeah. and everything, right? So one thing. Um, both at an individual level and a societal level. Um, like I, if I could, when I move again or ha- have have um, a place where I can plant trees, I would plant trees, right? Oh, uh, restore yeah. instead of a yard, I would have a prairie or wildflowers or whatever. Um, and so the, there's there's some research showing that if we just replanted we as a society our degraded lands and replanted them, that mm-hmm. so much of the carbon would be sequestered that we could still turn things around. So, oh, man. Yeah. again, collective action in that sense. Yeah, no, you're right. I think it has to come from the top down and from the bottom up. But I think it, I think what you're doing is just the right, uh, you know, uh, engaging the next generation right. in, mm-hmm. in this process. And hopefully they will be the new leaders and be able to... Um, you know, this will be high on, high up on the agenda. <laughs> and the thing with climate change is that it's very much tied to people don't always understand the human cost and the human mm. connection. Uh, there's a so there's a social justice component to things like climate change and also the pandemic, right? So so there's a new term now, climate justice, right? So the people who are most affected by these major crises, like the pandemic, like climate change are the ones who are the most vulnerable already to begin with, um, right? And so, uh, so, so there's a, so people who, who may not be as interested in the subject because they're not interested in, you know, whatever, like nature or climate or data or whatever, but they're more interested in people, let's say, um, yeah. and, you know, social justice, they, they can find a reason to be part of this as well. Wow. You've just been amazing to chat with. We could go on forever. <laughs> but we have to ask you, what's in your cup of tea? As I notice you sipping. <laughs> yeah, I have my tea in my favorite Leonard Cohen cup. Oh, wow. He's my, one of my favorite uh, poets and songwriters. So what I actually have today is um, 
golden masala chai oh. golden oh, okay so what is in that cup of tea turmeric makes it golden so there's a ginger root uh, cardamom cinnamon black pepper nutmeg cloves turmeric and um yeah that's basically and no tea an uh, actual tea <laughs> the most tea, tea powder yeah. you know, i i skip that because okay. <laughs> i was like okay i've got everything in but the actual but actually golden milk wow. i don't know if you've had that that's um that's basically turmeric and so, yeah in yeah, in, I, yeah. yeah this is, this is golden masala chai so um, yeah yeah really nice yeah, i like that kind of chai <laughs> like you steep it in warm water no so this yeah this is interesting it's actually already brewed chai and it comes with its own cute little um <gasps> that is good cool. spoon yeah and um you you put a spoonful of it in your cup and then pour hot water uh in it and then you you know it it dissolves and then you can add milk Thank you. It's been amazing. Wonderful. Wonderful. I hope uh, it was as fun for you as it was for us.